Hey, everybody. Um, my name is Kyle, and I want to welcome you to Uplift. Uh, this message is going to be streamed on Sunday mornings for our online Bible class. So if you're watching us on Sunday morning, I'm glad you're here. And it's also going to be on our podcast. Let me give you a little update on our podcast and podcasts, all right? Our church now has three podcasts. Uh, we've got this one. Used to be called Anchor Point. We've rebranded it. Now it's just called Uplift. Uplift at the First Colony Church of Christ. So Uplift messages will be on there. We're also going to have our Sunday sermons on a separate podcast called Sundays at the First Colony Church of Christ. And then uh, Joel Smith actually has a third podcast. It's called Dare to be Daniel. So uh, you'll see some more information about that. But we're, we're still kind of working out all of the details and all the online stuff. But if you go to your platform where you get podcasts and you just type First Colony Church of Christ, one of those three should pop up. This message is going to be on our podcast called Uplift. We're beginning a new teaching series here called Four. Everybody say four. Four resolutions. You didn't have to say that, but that's okay. I'll take it, Mr. Chris. By the way, I probably already lost you with the two words, four resolutions, right? I mean, we've got a hard enough time making and keeping just one. So you're probably wondering what in the world I'm thinking by giving you four to keep, right? That's what I thought when I titled this message series, that I'm going to lose everybody. I want to show you a book. It's uh, written by a guy named by Todd Pressman. The book is called Deconstructing Anxiety. It's a really, really good book, actually. It's, uh, I wouldn't call it self-help so much as it is just how to kind of unlock some fears. It's uh, and I wouldn't even really call it a surface book. I wouldn't call it a super deep book. It's not written from a Christian perspective. It's written from a therapeutical perspective. But I want to mention this to you. I think it might be some help to you. But I want to kind of tell you what Dr. Pressman's all about. He's a clinical psychologist, national speaker, and author. And he wrote an article just this week, and he referenced this book. And it, the, the article was specifically about New Year's resolutions. And what he said was that, we are often our own saboteurs of the best intentions when we make New Year's resolutions. And he writes that it's our own defenses that are to blame. In other words, we resolve with a steely determination to make a change, to do something different in our life. And we start the year with this intense self-discipline. And what happens, and you've probably already seen this, is that that tends to produce failure because we're so anxious and full of anxiety in the pursuit to make a lasting change that we end up buckling under that very stress. Happens to a lot of us. In other words, we, we don't want to eat that extra piece of cake, right? But we've made ourselves so afraid to fail that we fail anyway. We just can't handle the stress and we buckle beneath that stress and we go ahead and have that extra piece of cake, because we realize we can't sustain that pace. That probably sounds familiar. Now, in Deconstructing Anxiety, what Dr. Pressman writes is that exposing the nature of our fear is actually the key that unlocks lasting change. That's not rocket science. That's not new information. Um, we're all afraid to fail in some regard. So what Dr. Pressman does through this book and even in his private practice is coaches people on how to examine fears. What, what are you really afraid of and why are you really afraid of that? And then to disarm that fear in order to realize that maybe our imagined fears aren't necessarily as terrible as what we thought they were. You've probably seen this from philosopher Michelle 
de Montaigne, who wrote it best in the 16th century. My life has been full of terrible misfortunes, most of which have never happened. And that's true. That was true 500 years ago, and it's still true. Now, this is a pretty simple technique, right? I don't want to overly simplify this. Might be useful for you. You might want to purchase that book, but it might also be a little daunting how to change. And so let me just kind of get off the track just for a minute as an aside and just say, just to give you some encouragement, some coaching, that if you're trying to make a significant change, maybe from a sin in your life or maybe from a destructive habit, and you can't make it work, it's okay to get some outside help. It's more than okay to do that. Good therapy in good environments can clear the clutter of noisy lives, help you see some clarity. And I don't want you to be afraid of getting help. Now, let's get back on track. Maybe uh, you're not feeling really hopeful, though, about your resolutions. I want to show you some numbers here. This is what researchers suggest, that only 9% of Americans keep the resolutions they make. Only 9%. 9, 9 out of 100. Researchers also suggest that 23% of people quit their resolutions by the end of the first week of the new year. And then 43% quit by the end of the second week. So if you survived the first week, good job. Mission accomplished. Now, if you didn't, if you've already, if you've already failed, then I'm just going to tell you that you're a quitter in, the, in a majority of quitters. You're in good company. Don't feel so bad. Everybody else has quit too. It's all good. Good job. It's a good job. Four resolutions. So I thought we would start the new year here with four good resolutions that I think you're going to be happy to make. I think they're going to be good for you. At least I hope so. So let me frame these four resolutions for you. First, we're going to make one resolution a week for the next four weeks, which means Really, we're going to supersede all expectations of popular culture. If you want to be a success, just come to Uplift. You're going to be fine. Here's the second. We're going to make these resolutions from the text of the first chapter of the Gospel of Mark. We're all going to base it right there. Because the Gospel of Mark, at least to me, it's the shortest, by the way, of the four Gospels of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. It's the shortest. It's actually filled with more truth and more boldness than what you've ever cared to consider. So let's kind of start by talking about the Gospel of Mark for a minute. Just, just some basic information. Now, the Gospel of Mark, according to tradition, some strong tradition, by the way, was written in the city of Rome in the first century by the disciple named John Mark. Disciple of Jesus, you read about him in the New Testament. He's featured in a couple of places in the New Testament. According to early church fathers, or, you know, people about 100 or 200 years after the death and resurrection of Jesus, wrote about all these guys, these church fathers said that John Mark recorded the teachings of the Apostle Peter. That's kind of, so according to a really strong tradition, when you read the Gospel of Mark, at least the stories of it, that's secondhand information from Peter. That's kind of what most people believe. And by all accounts, it was the very first of the four Gospels ever written. So of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, Mark is not only the, set, the, the shortest, probably the first probably the first of those four. Now, I want you to think about that. If it's the first gospel, Mark had no template. Nothing existed like this before. He had never read anything like what he would write. What he wrote was brand new. There, were, there was no idea that other people would write them either. 
right? It's brand new. And the literary decisions he made, I think, are actually on point. Let me tell you why. When you read the Gospel of Mark, I've read it several times, Mark kind of opts for the ordinary in his book, just ordinary stuff. And his gospel is glaringly pedestrian. I mean, it's just filled with normal stuff, right? Stories of gatherings and farmers and dinner parties and family drama and fishermen and town gossips. I mean, that's kind of what's in the gospel. Now think again, Mark has, nothing like this has ever been written. He writes a story about Jesus. This is what he uses to tell the story about Jesus. Now, if you and I were writing, at least for me, if I was the first person to write a story about Jesus, I think I'm probably going to make some different decisions, right? I'm going to use some vaulted language, hard-to-pronounce words, big in, uh, introduction, big conclusion. We're going to finish it strong. It's going to be great. We're going to market it. That's, how I, that's probably how you would do it too, but this is not how Mark wrote it. I mean, without Jesus in this book, the stories he tells, would, they're just boring stories. There's nothing there. Nothing there. Without Jesus, it's just boring, simple things. I want you to listen to what scholar Howard Key wrote about the Gospel of Mark in his book, Christian Origins and Sociological Perspectives. I love this quote. I've used it often. I'm going to use it again. The Gospel of Mark, Howard, wrote, Howard Key wrote, the Gospel of Mark portrays something which neither poets nor the historians of antiquity ever set out to portray. The birth of a spiritual movement from within the everyday occurrences of contemporary life, which thus assumes an importance it could never have assumed in antique literature. It's too serious for comedy. It's too everyday for tragedy. It's politically too insignificant to history. And the form which was given it is one of such immediacy that it's like doesn't exist in the literature of antiquity. This guy says this book is one of a kind, which makes it important. It, it, there's nothing like it anywhere else in the world. Now, John Mark sat down to write this book, and here we are. It's a normal, ordinary story that becomes extraordinary. Now, I don't want these sort of simple descriptions to fool you because even when you read Mark, if, if you kind of read it for the first time, if you read it without the history, if you've been a believer a long time, if you just kind of read it for, for the first time, you're going you're gonna to see this. It feels like a slice of life kind of book, but it's anything but. In fact, when I disciple people, when I disciple people, this is the first gospel I tell them to read. Read the gospel of Mark first. It's simple. It's quick to read, small sentences, reads like something on Twitter. Uh, it's just really, it moves fast. There's one story to the next story to the next story. And Mark uses these phrases like, and then, and the next day. I mean, it just keeps going. You just, you don't, it's, you don't want to put it down. It feels like this slice of life kind of book, but it's really not. It's, it's a seemingly normal story in the most extravagant way possible. Mark did not shortchange the story of Jesus. Now, we know this from the very first words that he wrote. The first sentence, the very opening part of this book. If you have your Bibles, you can open it up to Mark chapter 1. It should be on your order of worship. We're going to have it on the screen. What we're going to do is we're going to read this, and I'm going to show you some things about what Mark did. And then we're going to get to our resolution a little bit later. 
Mark chapter 1, verse 1. The beginning of the gospel about Jesus Christ, the Son of God. The beginning of the gospel about Jesus Christ, the Son of God. It's one of those skip-overable kind of verses if you're trying to read it. You just kind of move on. Here's what I want to do over the next few minutes. I want to point out three words, very important words from this, from this line. Elevate this story for you and show you this first resolution. Here's the first word. First word that I want to talk about is the word beginning. Beginning. It's the first word in the book. First word that Mark ever wrote about Jesus. I mean, I want you to imagine this man writing this first book about the life of Jesus, and the first word that he decided to write was the word beginning. Now, that's, that's, that's pretty radical. It's, it's, uh, it's really easy to understand and see that Mark is thinking about Genesis chapter 1, verse 1, right? In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. He's got that on his brain when he writes this. Had to. So Mark's opening line here Indeed, his entire book, it's not part B to the part A of Genesis, though. Let me make that really clear. Mark didn't write now for the rest of the story. It's, it's not the second verse, the next chapter. It's not a sequel. It's another beginning. That's what Mark says. It's another beginning. It's a new creation of a new heaven and a new earth. And, and listen, in Mark's world, this is a big deal. It's a, it's a world controlled by the Roman Empire. It's dripping with the blood of violence and injustice and accepted oppression. There's little to no hope from the governing authorities. You really can't put a lot of hope in your families. People have little to no career opportunities. Half of Mark's world are slaves. Poverty is the norm. Allegiance and loyalties are given to those with the most power. And it's into that world, Mark says, this is the beginning. The world gets a new beginning in Jesus. That's what he's writing. That's what he's saying. So it's just a a radical way of seeing Jesus. So beginning, there's word number one. Here's the second word. Second word that I want to talk about is the word gospel. The word gospel. In fact, by including the word gospel in his very first written line, whether he knew it or not, Mark was the first person in the history of the world to use this word as the title and description of a piece of literature. No one had ever done that before. He's the first. Now, you're probably wondering, some of you Bible scholars know that this word exists in the New Testament in other books that were written before the Gospel of Mark. It's true. It's true. A lot of these were written before, but you're not going to find that word in those letters of Paul, especially in reference to a book or any title to a book. They're about the message of Jesus, the the message that Jesus spoke or the message about Jesus that other preachers and teachers speak. That's how it's used in other places in the New Testament. But right here for Mark, it's not used that way. It's used as a title. Now, let's, go, let's, take a, let's talk about this word a little bit more. We're going to kind of, kind of keep digging down into this word because this word actually goes back farther than the New Testament. In fact, it goes all the way back to classical Greek. The word gospel, 300, 400 years before Jesus, was actually used as, as a political word. That's what it was. 
It was used as political propaganda. Now, that's probably not too hard to figure out. I mean, if those of us who've grown up in churches, you've, you were probably drilled the definition of this word just like I was. It's, what does the word gospel mean? It means, tell me, good news is what it means. So if you kind of think about it, you can kind of figure it out. But, but we never heard it that way. That's how we always learned this word. Until Jesus, this word was used for other things. And since we've learned the word means good news, really, that's what the word always meant. No big surprise there. The basic definition of this word gospel is good news, but as one biblical scholar writes, the the word could probably be more literally translated as not just good news, but good news of victory from the battlefield. That's kind of how it's supposed to be translated. If you're going to be really literal about it, that's the origin of this word. So to Mark's audience and his own world, would have heard this word and would have known it would have been associated immediately with the Roman Empire. They didn't think immediately this word's gonna be associated with Jesus. Another New Testament scholar calls this the imperial gospel. I like that phrase. You can write that down. I don't think I have that on the slide. But this is kind of what the imperial gospel is. It's a rhetorical tradition that weaves together allegory, contemporary, reality, historical archetypes. In other words, the gospel from rulers and governors and emperors is going to be this this, uh, inflated view of the world. It's this glorious, these glorious uh, victories, right? Because that's what it was before Jesus. That's what the word meant. It was good news from a military leader or some imperial ruler that armies had been victorious and the world is different forever and ever. That's what the word gospel meant. But here's what the New Testament people did. They hijacked that word. They took it right away and right out of the hands of these emperors and wrote that the gospel, the good news, is not in reference to some earthly earthly emperor or king. It's not just used for propaganda. It's the good news about Jesus. That's what good news is. The Christ the anointed, the son of the God of the Israelites, the creator of the world whose life and death and resurrection will challenge every dominant political and cultural idea of their empire and every empire to come. That's what these guys said when they used the word gospel. They took it right out of the mouths and the the hands of the scribes of Rome and they said, this is what good news is. It's not over here. Quit looking over there. It's right here. But there's even more about this word. Let's keep going. In literature, outside of the New Testament, so in other words, books that are not, that are written in the Greek language, not a part of the Bible, this word actually shows up. It's in other, it's other, other writings. It's a little technical, but I, wanted to, I, I thought this was worth sharing. The word is always always used as a plural word, gospels, gospels. That the gospel of so-and-so is just one bit of good news among a bunch of good news, right? It's just a headline on a crawl screen. It's just one item that trends in Twitter with two dozen of these other items. It's just one thing, right? Outside of the New Testament, it's always in the plural. But in the Bible, 
And at the hands of Mark and other New Testament writers, this word appears as a singular word. Now, you know what that means? It means there's only one. There's only one gospel. There's only one bit of good news. The gospel of Jesus is not one of many. It's the only one. You don't have to look anywhere else. And let's keep going. There's more about this word. When you compare other stories of Jesus's life, so we have four of these written books, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. When you put Mark in comparison with Matthew and Luke and John, Mark is the only one to use this word as an absolute word. Now, this might be a little more technical than the past couple of minutes, but this is important too. There's no qualifier here. If you had a Greek Bible, you could see it, right? Let me explain what this is. In our language, English language, Greek language, there are qualifying words like the, the chair, the room, this chair, this room, this piece of paper, right? Other New Testament writers use the word the next to gospel. It's the gospel of Jesus. There's a little Greek word that that you know is the word the, right? It's there. Mark, though, doesn't put that word in front of the word gospel. I'm telling you, it's, it's a big deal. What he's saying, literarily, is that the word gospel, it stands alone, right? It's all by itself. It's not just the gospel. It's the only gospel. That's kind of what he's saying. So when he writes this this way, that's what people are going to, it's kind of a shock. Like, oh my goodness, this is the only one. It's even above anything we've ever heard. There isn't any better news to follow here. Nothing can follow the gospel. That's what he's saying. Now, this actually makes this a pretty scandalous proposition, right? All these things just, what what I've hopefully done for you is just continue to elevate this word that that Mark uses. Just kind of keep pushing it up because this is how they're gonna see it. The original readers of this gospel, the first people who read this This is a pretty scandalous thing, right? Pretty scandalous. Because I want you to kind of consider that the first people who read this gospel, who read this book of Mark, they were believers in Jesus. They lived in the city of Rome, and they were undergoing horrors of both torture and death for their belief in Jesus. That's what was happening. Because they believed the good news, they were being tortured and killed. They suffered because of the good news. That ought to make our heads spin a little bit. How is it good if it's going to make me hurt, right? That's what's happening here. Mark knew this. That's why he wrote this book. It's his defense of Jesus in the midst of our very real wrestling with pain. And here's, here's kind of what Mark does here, right? If Mark proposed that the gospel of Jesus and the gospel about Jesus is so good, then we have to assume, we have to believe that it's good for the tormented, it's good for the lonely, it's good for those who are afraid, and it's good for those who are being persecuted. But let's just keep going because really what we want to ask is how is this even true? We've all hurt and experienced significant loss. How is this good news? How, what, what makes it so good, especially to those who heard it, 
knowing that their lives could be taken from them at any moment. And I want you to consider that. Just pause for a minute and just think about that because you and I, we appreciate the affluence of our culture. We do. The expediency, the efficiency, the immediacy of life here, it's nice. It's nice. In fact, I got an iPhone for Christmas. Makes my life a lot simpler. Let me tell you what I did the other night. Hadn't had Siri ever, maybe seven years. Last time I had an iPhone. Laid down. I said, hey, Siri, set my alarm for five o'clock. She said, done. I was so enthralled, I said, thank you. (laughs) And I just, I thought, did I just thank my phone? And before I finished that, she said, you're welcome. (laughs) This is too easy. Oh, life is easy with an iPhone. Just gonna, that's my commercial for Apple. I'll receive their check in a little bit, and I'll, I'll pass it out to you too. What do you think about that? We like this. But to believe in Jesus under duress, right? To receive a book about Jesus that proclaimed the beginning of this good news had to have been a little confusing. Had to have been. And it's into this moment that Mark wrote this book. I mean, it's the purpose of writing this, this gospel that he wrote. This is why he wrote it. You want to know why Mark decided to write this book about, this is why, this is why. It's going to show you the good news. And here, I want to show you for the next couple of minutes how he showed this good news, how he showed it played out. So what we're going to do over the next couple of minutes, we're going to take a, make a couple more stops in the gospel of Mark to show you how good this news really is. We're going to start in Mark chapter 3. You can open your Bibles there. We're not going to read anything from it, but you might want to just know where the reference is, right? Mark chapter 3, here's what's happening. Jesus is in a house. He's caused a lot of trouble, caused a lot of trouble. There are some people who don't like Jesus. They've showed up. They're coming after him. They got, and then there's some other people that are kind of concerned about Jesus, and that's his nuclear family. They're showing up. So Jesus is in this house, and outside he's got these detractors, these haters, and he's got his family, and they're wearing him out, right? And he kind of confronts the detractors, but he kind of leaves his family outside of the house. Someone comes up to Jesus and says, listen, Jesus, your family's out here. And he, he never lets them in, by the way. But he says something. He says, you want to know who my family is? My family is comprised of those who do the will of God. That's a big statement. Those who do the will of God. Now, you and I, we read this statement, and we're not really sure what that means. I mean, we live in a culture that defies any absolute truth. We are now left to our own experiences to define what anything is now, right? So like hearing a phrase, the will of God, we kind of need to think about this because this phrase, doing the will of God, it's been adopted by both terrorists and missionaries, So we kind of have to say, what does this mean? What does this mean? We need to hear how Mark defines it. Mark doesn't, though, he doesn't write out a definition. This is what it means to do the will of God. He doesn't do that. He does, though, define it by showing how Jesus does the will of God. Later, here's the third stop from Mark 1 to Mark 3. This is in Mark chapter 14. Now, Jesus... He's in the Garden of Gethsemane in Mark chapter 14. Prior to his execution at the hands of the Roman government, he's going to die the same way that a lot of believers are going to soon die in the city of Rome. 
Y'all see what's going on now? Right? Mark's readers have and will experience the same death. And in that garden, Jesus says this prayer, Abba, Father, all things are possible to you. Remove this cup, this cup of execution. Remove this from me. Here's the phrase, yet not what I will, but what you will. In his most torturous moment, Jesus accepted the will of God even as he prayed for it to be different. That's a big one. I'm praying for something else to happen over here. But if this is your will for me, God, I'm going to do it. I want this, but I'll take this because this is what you want of my life. This is what Jesus does here. And by doing so, he did the will of God. He did the will of God. Now, this thread of Jesus' death, his acceptance, and his submission of and to the will of God is Mark's message of this book. It's the good news about Jesus. It's the only good news. There's nothing better to follow that the will of God can be accomplished even if it leads to an unjust death because there is a resurrection that follows. And that's what the second word, gospel, means. That's what it means. Let's go back to Mark chapter 1, verse 1, before we talk about the third word. Let's kind of refresh our memory here. The beginning of the gospel about Jesus Christ, the Son of God. A lot of other words I could have picked here. Here's the one I want to focus on. The third word is the word son, S-O-N, son. Now, with this line here, Mark opened his book to state Everything he's going to write is just the beginning of the gospel about Jesus. And the good news is that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. He's intimate with the creator of all things. Now, Mark's choice to name Jesus here as the Son of God shows us a couple of things. We kind of figure this out the more you read through the gospel of Mark. The first thing that this phrase, Son of God, is actually Mark's favorite title for identifying Jesus in this book. He does it in chapter 1, chapter 3, chapter 5, chapter 9, 12, 13, 14, and 15. He calls Jesus the Son of God throughout the entire gospel. He loves it. And here's why. The second thing here is that this is Mark's way of telling his readers that Jesus, as the Son of God, pre-existed before this moment and that he is God. He didn't just show up. He wasn't just born. He was around before any of this happened. In other words, and this is the big thing, Jesus' suffering as the Son of God was no surprise. It was no surprise. It was the will of God. That was the point of Jesus' life. That's what he was. That was all, that's what it was all about. Now, all of this, these three words, this sort of dissection of Mark chapter 1, verse 1, it leads us to the first of our four resolutions, and it's this. I resolve to believe the gospel. I resolve to believe it. Now, that sounds pretty simplistic. It really does. Maybe a little anticlimactic. 
But I think what Mark does by opening his gospel this way, it challenges us in the opposite direction with such nuanced writing and explicit meaning to words. What Mark says is that the gospel of Jesus is definitive. It's absolute. It's rock solid. Mark believed it. He believed that Jesus' life has real human impact. It speaks of the Son of God whose humanity did not exclude him from difficulty. In fact, what Jesus does is he redeems the difficulty. And with his life, he actually says that difficulty can be the will of God for us, and it's good because it's hopeful because that difficulty is not the final answer. There is a resurrection. That's why it's good news. And I hope that you, with me, begin this year by making this resolution to believe the gospel about Jesus Christ, the Son of God.